0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are used and implemented in healthcare around the globe. I'm your host, Tjasa Zeitz, and on the menu today is precision medicine. Or if you want to define it through hype words, how big data and AI will help us get to right treatments faster. The guest of the show today is the data scientist, Dr. Subha Madhavan, whose background lies in molecular biology and biological sciences. She is the director of the Innovation Center for Biomedical Informatics at the Georgetown University Medical Center. She contributes to research on a national and international level, and one of her latest projects is a partnership with the FDA to develop evidence bases for pharmacogenomics and vaccine safety. Our discussion resolved around the current state of precision medicine, what genes have to do with credit scores and zip codes, and how affordable is precision medicine, since Precision medicine drugs only apply to small samples of patients and are extremely highly priced. To start from simplicity to complexity, let's first define precision
1: medicine. Uh, Precision medicine, I sort of look at it in a very simple way. Um, It's actually medical treatment treatment that is um, optimized to be more efficient using um, patient-specific characteristics, such as molecular data about that patient or uh, the environment in which they live in, um, what kind of food they eat, incorporating all that data to really optimize their medical care. Is there a difference between personalized medicine and precision medicine? So those terms are used very interchangeably, um, but I think sometimes... Personalized medicine is um, sort of wrongly implied, uh, implies that you're actually designing treatments very specific for that individual, whereas precision health is using the individual characteristics of that patient and designing a treatment plan. So another patient might have those exact same characteristics where the treatment would apply. So the precision medicine is, in my opinion, a better term and more sort of captures the essence of what it is. Precision medicine sounds
0: very uh, promising and very optimistic. You know, it makes you feel that uh, you as a patient, because you will do a genome sequencing, the doctor will be able to solve all your problems. However, we are still far from that. In 2016, a precision medicine initiative was uh, started with a 130 million uh, US dollars allocated
1: to this. Um, where are we today with that? So this is first of its kind where you have detailed information about participants and you have an opportunity to longitudinally follow them over time. So some of them will end up getting a disease. So we could apply predictive models to then say, if... If other patients had similar characteristics, are they also going to get the same disease or are they going to respond to the same types of treatment? It's one of the the largest precision medicine programs that the government has initiated. This um, program began uh, under uh, President Obama's administration. Uh, The goal of this program is to collect individualized information about participants. Um, actually, the program doesn't call them patients. It calls them participants because, uh, you know, they're not patients specifically with a particular disease, and they want to curate data uh, from over a million patients into this database. So the vision for this program is to collect um, all kinds of information about these participants. So you might collect data from electronic medical records, uh, if they visit a certain hospital for their treatment, um, you know, it might collect information about their any biospecimen, so blood samples or buccal swabs, um, so that you could actually do DNA analysis, genetic analysis on these patients. And there's also questionnaires using which information is collected about their lifestyle and, you know, environmental exposure and things of that nature.
0: But how applicable is this going to be to the rest of the population, because one of the big issues when it comes to big data is how that data is gathered. So, for example, in this research, it's like a clinical trial. You know, you have standardized ways of gathering data. Whereas if you, tr- if you look at other patients, then different hospitals might do tests differently. The patients live in different environments. So how much can
1: you then combine these two data sets? the way the the All of Us program is designed is is really to take into account that type of diversity, uh, you know, not only from a population standpoint, so different races and ethnicities are represented, but also geographically distributed population.
0: Where can we already see any results of the precision medicine today? Uh, you were the principal investigator uh, of the Breast and Colon Cancer Family Registry Data Center that coordinated the public health and epidemiology data across uh, 12 sites in in the United States, Australia, and Canada. What were the, the findings there?
1: This uh, program, the Best in Colon Cancer Family Registry, um, was um, funded by the National Cancer Institute. The vision of that program was to collect data uh, from population-based registries. So we collected data from over 15,000 individuals whose, um, you know, we, we not only collected data from the proband, who is the individual that actually had the disease, the breast or the colon cancer, but also about their families. Uh, there was genetic information collected in environmental exposures dietary information collected um this study has resulted in a number of results that you know begin to estimate uh, the risk factors um uh, for breast and colon cancer um we uh we don't fully understand this yet because the science is still evolving those markers that came out of these large consortia efforts are now part of clear cap certified gene panels that are used um you know nationally and internationally uh, to assess risk um, for these types of cancers. So so that's what the research program led to. Um, and it's, it's a natural cycle. It takes five to 10 years uh, before such research gets translated into clinical care. We're proud to see that some of it is already getting translated. What exactly is getting translated already? These biomarkers that can be used to assess risks um risk of occurrence of uh, breast and colon cancer imagine um someone has uh, a family history of colon cancer uh and you know they they can do a simple blood test uh and get their dna tested for um the msi microsatellite instability and msh family of proteins which can estimate whether or not they have a high risk or a low risk for occurrence of colon cancer in their lifetime. And that is a very actionable piece of information, uh, you know, and then they can use that to change their lifestyle or get routine testing or diagnostic based on that testing. Um, so that is the clinical translation from from research programs like the Breast and Colon Cancer Family Registries.
0: Has this in any way been uh, presented to the public? So you People would be more prone to get themselves tested or try to find out if they are, uh, if they have risk for cancer. Because
1: yeah, so I think actionability of information is critical with these types of risk analysis or you know preventable diagnostics. A lot of information, especially with DNA testing, could be non-actionable. Uh, and you know this is national debate where um, you know clinicians are talking about what is useful information that should be delivered to patients and what is use- information that should not be delivered to patients because it's not re- readily actionable today. The problem with prevention and healthcare
0: and uh, kind of encouraging people to to do uh, any healthcare testing is that... Um, in prevention, we're talking about delayed gratification. So there's no immediate incentive for you to really uh, learn that something is wrong with you if you feel okay. It's
1: almost on a daily basis, we, the, the science is evolving and also the more patient data we collect, we're able to be much more precise. We do have direct to consumer testing, DNA testing now, you know, companies like 23andMe, um, uh, provide such testing, prevention genomics. There are a number of other companies that do this and, um, you know, they, they have teams Teams that interpret the genomic data and provide their interpretation based on the data that they have collected in the database. So today, you know, somebody might have a risk factor of, um, you know, your risk is increased by, say, 5 to 6%. Tomorrow, based on the database... The, the participants' data that's collected in the database, they might be able to update that interpretation and say, well, your risk is now actually 10%. When it comes
0: to risk factors and when it comes to probability, you can always wonder what if you're in those 30% that is not going to get a specific disease um, despite... A specific uh, biomarkers?
1: So there's a lot of uh, patient education and clinician education, honestly, that needs to be done. Um, I think even today, most of us will rely on what the clinician tells us, as opposed to what an app tells us, for example, uh, or a direct-to-consumer genomic testing. So there's a lot of education that can um, help educate people on what exactly an odds ratio means, what exactly a risk factor means, and how should you use this information. Um, so you will find that different population of participants or patients are much more receptive to this type of information than some others um, so it's a continually evolving education process that i think we all need to engage in as a community uh, to be able to not only uptake this information but also utilize it in our day-to-day lifestyle
0: you touched upon an interesting topic which is a personal interaction versus the information you get from machines there's a lot of expectations and hope maybe also because of movies about what computers and what AI can can tell us, and you uh, at South by Southwest, you mentioned an interesting survey about uh, the use of of AI uh, in today's everyday life. Maybe you can. Talk a bit about that.
1: Yeah. So Accenture did this survey of healthcare consumers around the country. And, um, you know, they published that 47% of healthcare consumers in the United States would like a healthcare AI assistant today in their homes. Um, and which is very interesting data as a data scientist to me because, you know, that's where healthcare is going. Um, so the first, your, your first stop is going to be your AI assistant, not a call into your doctor's office if there were symptoms that you were concerned about. Um, so, I think that's a challenge in front of tech companies to uh, really simulate a medical interaction at, at participants' homes. Um, so, what that means to us, you know, I mean, technology and data science really needs to improve if we ought to, if we have to support that type of large scale consumer interaction with artificial intelligence. Um, I think with like any. Any technology uh, you know if you look at the Gartner's hype cycle uh, you know the the technologies that are going to be most useful well it, it takes time there is a natural cycle uh, when these technologies become more and more useful and I think we're already beginning to see real applications of machine learning and artificial intelligence and natural language learning we are involved in uh, building a recommender system for patients with advanced yeah. metastatic cancers uh, and we 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 tend to think of the clinician or the human as being in the loop of AI. So I, I, I like to call AI as augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence, because it's really augmenting the clinical workflow. Um, and, you know, it's being, it's deployed today. It's helping patients. Uh, we work with um, the pancreatic cancer advocacy group and uh, multiple cancer centers around the country uh, to really take information about the genetic characteristics of the patient, uh, prior medical history, uh, clinical outcomes of prior patients who had similar characteristics and the recommender system begins to rank treatment options. Um, this is what we're doing in our, uh, in the startup that I'm involved in, uh, Perthera, uh, w- which is based in Northern Virginia where, um, you know, we take all this information and the recommender system puts out a list of treatment options for patients and then the medical review panel or clinical experts go in and revise those options if need be specifically for that patient. So this is how sort of we intradigitate the human expertise with artificial intelligence to help patients today. How many experts are usually involved in one assessment? So typically, um, if you consider a tumor board, uh, you know, you, you've got um, radiologists, pathologists, uh, medical oncologists who all get together uh, to make these treatment recommendations. But, you know, um they're not able to process all patients through tumor boards. Um, so what we're attempting to do is really democratize this process uh, and make a web-based tool that allows clinicians who don't have to get into a single room to uh, really discuss these treatment options. So... Um, typically, two to three clinicians are involved, um, per case, depending on the expertise that's needed. So, for example, um, you know, if we were considering a DNA repair protein inhibitor, uh, then someone who has expertise, research expertise in that area will jump in. Uh, and because of this asynchronous tumor board, it allows for you to select the, the experts from, Anywhere in the world Mm. to participate in that, in that discussion. And from various fields. And from various fields, depending on the need for that particular patient. And if it was, uh, if it was an imaging, so I recently sat in on one of the, one of the breast tumor boards and it was uh, just amazing where uh, the original treatment plan was based on a single lesion. Um, for this patient. And it was just a hormonal therapy. It was stage two breast cancer. And the moment in the tumor board, they projected the image, they could see that there was a single lesion, but there were a number of distributed lesions. And the medical oncologist was uncomfortable with the previous treatment option, which was just a hormonal therapy. So she added, uh, you know, anthracycline on top of the hormonal therapy. And this could not have happened without the tumor board of you know the radiologist and the medical oncologist looking at that case together, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we we need that kind of tumor board, multidisciplinary discussion for every patient with advanced metastatic yeah. cancer, yeah. which does not happen today. But it, I think with the right technology, we can scale
0: it. It's like a next level multidisciplinary um, treatment of patients. When uh, I uh, remember how when multidisciplinary teams started being established inside hospitals, everybody was, were, uh, was looking at this multidisciplinary collaboration is like this big discovery in medicine, and now today we're thinking like, but of course, different specialties need to collaborate. I mean, the human body is so complex that you need specialties because um, you need the, the human mind is just not strong enough to know everything. Right. But we still have to have the connectivity among yeah, different especially specialties, especially for
1: complex diseases like cancer, where there is multidimensional data that one has to un- understand. Uh, multidisciplinary teams are. In- inevitable. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, when it comes to precision medicine, cancer is actually one of the things that comes to our minds first, especially with immunotherapy and with the CAR-T uh, uh, therapies that are the big thing now. Um, however, there's still a lot of uh, questions open on how much can we actually uh, leverage from that at the moment mm-hmm. because, um, these therapies are first of all very expensive mm-hmm. and the second of all, they apply usually to a very limited amount of patients. Mm-hmm. And the third issue is that, um, they actually prolong life for not that uh, big periods of time. We are talking about months. However, clinicians do say that the big uh, advantage of these new uh, immunotherapies is the better quality of life. So, um in that sense, um, how much is precision therapy actually improving uh, care on a broader scale, and how much is it actually just showing us how mu- how complex? Diseases
1: really are. So let's talk about applicability to other disease areas. Um, while cancer was the poster child for precision health, uh, we're beginning to see a lot of biomarker work in other disease areas now, which are clinically used. Um, so for example, um, you know, pharmacogenomic testing of cytochrome P450 genes, which predict whether or not, uh, you're giving the right dosage of drug. To to patients is now being used in um, anesthesiology, and cardiology, and other disciplines as well in pain medications, for example. Um, uh, uh, so so I think it's it, you're beginning to see the applications in other uh, disease areas uh, that are we're actually working on this uh, in the Georgetown MedStar Health System in the DC Baltimore area where teams are looking at um, RNA sequencing, which is the gene expression data, right? So the DNA gets transcribed into RNA. If you look at the central dogma. DNA gets transcribed into RNA, and RNA gets translated into proteins, and proteins are the workhorses within the cell. So you could actually measure the RNA quantity and predict whether or not somebody is going to reject a stent that was placed um, for them. So, um, so these kinds of biomarkers are beginning to emerge. Um, the the other point you raised was about financial toxicity. So, you know, targeted therapies are very expensive today, uh, and you know it can it can it can literally make families bankrupt. Um, some of them are hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, uh, of cost uh, and and i think as a community we need to work towards reducing these costs and making these drugs more more available uh we are beginning to see um Interesting um, innovations in study design, which can potentially reduce the number of patients that the pharmaceutical companies need to recruit um, in order to actually get to that endpoint, get to that outcome that can get them the approval for that drug, and it can also shrink the time frame. So, a couple of such innovations are called basket trials or umbrella trials, uh, which are different from the classical randomized controlled trials, uh, which can allow for this kind of efficiency to be gained. Um, so, uh, then the hope is that 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 gain in, in time and efficiency will be passed along to consumers and therefore the cost will be, will be lower. And I think the government has a huge role to play in this as we regulate, um, these drugs and the costs, um, and, and payers, um, uh, CMS as well as private payers have a big say, uh, in this as well. So
0: I think that's one of the crucial points, you know, just, uh, new, uh, payment models and regulation. I think that's a really big, uh, Difference between uh, Europe and the public systems compared to the free market in the U.S., where um, there was just recently this news about um, a drug being raised from six hundred dollars to. $20,000 Twenty thousand dollars, despite the fact that it was a ge- um, it was a generic drug, and then another pharma company came in saying that they are patient friendly and they made their generic drug, and the price of that generic drug of a one hundred bottle pill was. $18,000, mm-hmm. which from a European perspective where um, the prices are very heavily regulated mm-hmm. is unacceptable, right. you know, and the, right. the fact that
1: you claim that that's patient
0: friendly is just, uh, it's just beyond mocking in right. my perspective.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the healthcare system in the U.S. is very different from uh, the U.K., for example, which is you know mostly mm-hmm. government paid uh, and uh, which is with a single payer system. I think we we have to make it work for our model in in the U.S. Uh, and and you know paying for procedure needs to go. I think we've been talking about value based payments and focusing more on patient outcomes and paying for patient outcomes is the direction we're heading. But it's not something you can accomplish overnight. Uh, a, a lot of things like the ACOs and other best practices need the triple blame, best practices need to be put in place and implemented within the hospitals to make that happen. I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, in the end, it's all about
0: uh, policies yeah. and how you will yeah. just regulate the market. And yeah. are you going to adopt outcome based payments, which are now changing? Mm-hmm. How much uh practical applications of uh, precision medicine do you see when it comes to reducing the adverse drug reactions which to some uh, according to some estimates cost around thirty billion uh dollars that was like in two thousand and thirteen?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the vision for uh, precision medicine testing is really to reduce serious adverse events. Um, typically, you know, the way we practice medicine today is there's a lot of trial and error. So let me try this drug. If it doesn't work, I'm going to switch you to drug number two. If that doesn't work, I'm going to switch you to drug number three. Uh, we also don't always consider polypharmacy issues. So the patient with cancer might also have diabetes, you know, they might have other disorders. So comorbidity and other you know polypharmacy issues are are, are a big deal um while you cannot decipher all of the polypharmacy issues with just genomic information, uh, it's one angle or one aspect of information that can be had about this patient, which can then be used to predict whether or not you should be giving them drug A and drug B because they're going to interact. And the way a patient metabolizes drug A could be very different from how they metabolize drug B, and therefore the the doses need to be altered. Um, So I think we can be you know, very precise about the specific drugs and the dosing with this type of information. If it's on all patients, right? So, so you can imagine uh, at birth, if um, you know patients had their germline sequenced, you, you have that information lifelong, essentially supporting all of the treatments that the child, as he he or she becomes an adult, uh, can can keep leveraging because the constitutional DNA doesn't really change. In comparison to the somatic DNA, which if somebody during their lifetime gets uh, a certain type of cancer, then you've got a completely different genome, which is growing inside your body within that organ, uh, which then needs to be sequenced again uh, in order for us to specifically target that cancer. But germline DNA... Once you sequence it, um, you know, you you have that information for a lifetime. And you can use that to predict adverse events, um, you know, the right treatments and the right doses uh, to give. This is an emerging science. I think uh, recently, um so PharmGKB is one of the databases that uh, we all, data scientists, routinely use. It's managed uh, and maintained by Stanford University, uh, which, you know, there was a recent article that showed that about 500 drugs... Uh, we already know what are the gene alleles that impact the dosing for fi- over 500 drugs already. So there's a lot of information out there that can be used um, very specifically before we write that script for the patient. Yeah,
0: I think uh, FDA has around 300 uh, drugs that are precision medicine drugs that are, have been approved. And I think um, when it comes to thinking about the potentials of big data and these data sets, this can. Uh, be especially promising when it comes to rare diseases. There's like more than 7,000 rare diseases, and Mm -hmm. the European definition says that a rare disease is a disease that affects uh, one person in 2,000 people. Or uh, according to the U.S. definition, it's uh, fewer than... A disease that uh, occurs in fewer than uh, 200,000 people. And that's uh, thinking that, for example, in small uh, countries that don't have specialized centers for these diseases, these diseases uh, often uh, don't uh, get solved, you know doctors, it's just impossible to figure out what, what's going on. With the-
1: because it's so rare, yeah, right? So yeah. you may not see enough patients with a certain genetic profile. So there are um, sort of patient-driven organizations like the Genetic mm-hmm. Alliance, um, for example, that really use social media uh to collect information on patients that might have a certain certain rare disease to get that information into a into a database so that we could do predictive analytics because you need large n. Um so this is a classic problem in biomedicine. You have the the small n large p problem, right, as we call it. Uh the small n being you've you've only got limited number of patients. Not true just for rare diseases. Even for common disorders, we don't have the number of participants in any one database in, in the millions of rows right within within a database and that is a problem and you you will collect uh numerous information about these patients so you've got a large p but you've got a small n so as data scientists it's important for us to be able to develop methods that can deal with this small n large p problem to say something clinically meaningful uh and i think the rare diseases are a classic example so if we don't have data commons or national and international networks that can collect information about these patients, which can then be used for other future patients that um, have a similar similar disease.
0: We talked a lot about the genetic uh, blueprint and uh, the genetic base uh, that determines what you're going to, how you're going to respond to drugs, which diseases you're going to get. However, um, one of the
1: biggest determinants of uh, health is actually the environment you know, the two largest determinants of healthcare are zip code and credit scores. Um, so if you actually think about it, there's a lot of science to it, because the zip code essentially means that there is environmental exposure and gene environment interactions have now been studied for over a decade, which are very critical for us to understand for disease incidents, right? And And the zip code is essentially pointing to the gene environment interactions for a lot of diseases. So there's a lot of science to be uh, developed in the future and a lot of current science and gene environment interactions that need to be translated into clinical practice. If you look at credit scores, you know, it's, it's the economics of it. Um, and, and that simply talks about access to healthcare. Uh, and, you know, what, uh, no more than 5 to 10% of the world population has um, high quality healthcare that's available to them
0: in yeah. the breast and colon cancer study that we mentioned before was there any observation on the differences between the united states canada
1: and australia the the mutations in the genes are somewhat population specific right so for example ashkenazi jews have a higher incidence of um, uh, brca uh, based you know cancer types for example uh and so you you see that so if you study the world population uh, there's sort of groups of people where um these mutations are highly prevalent uh and 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 we see those kinds of differences between uh the caucasian the the us population the australian population the canadian population um when it comes to sort of dietary and environmental exposures uh, we have a long way to go to fully understand what really causes uh, these diseases, and especially in um, sort of developed countries, uh, the the exposure to asbestos or lead is fairly limited in the in the populations that gets into these registries. So mm. uh, it's it's kind of hard to make a statistically significant statement about about chemical exposure. The studies that try
0: to figure out the dietary uh, restrictions and differences and recommendations are really hard to make. Food and and diet is something that is really hard to track accurately, especially if on a long period of time. Right. So that and it th- changes over time. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why it's so confusing in the end right. when you have… Uh, Different research or yeah. clinical trials outcomes or just analysis yeah. coming out through throughout the years. And in today, we yeah. have one recommendation and in 10 years, it's going to yeah. be like completely
1: debunked. So here is a, here's a self serving statement about data scientists. That's why we need data scientists to really understand the confounding variables and the confounding factors and what is signal and what is noise. I think with every data set, uh, there's always noise that you have to deal with. Um, and you need really good data science methods and sharp questions that we can ask because, you know, the methods are really determined by how good questions, what kind of good questions we can ask off the data set, because that then helps us answer those questions well with the given data set or not. Sometimes data sets, you you know, data science experiments fail because you don't, you've not collected the right data or, uh, you know, you've not sampled the population accurately. Um, You know, there could be so many issues, but, you know, we need to be prepared to take that risk. Uh, And there will always be noise with data. That doesn't mean that we should stop trying to extract signals out of them. There's another...
0: um potentially problematic point. So I'm talking about uh, the negative scenarios of if you're going to be able to determine what a specific population can get, can that be politically problematic if the wrong party... Um, gets access to that information. Yeah,
1: yeah I you know that's a really good point. Uh I think there's there's a fear factor about um you know putting out your genomic information out there for researchers to use because people worry that uh you know that might somehow impact um their ability to get a good life insurance for example uh, or a good job for example, right? Um and so uh the GINA Act which was uh done in 2008 um really protects participants from this. GINA stands for genetic information non-discrimination act so um genetic Information that's available from participants cannot be used to discriminate against these kinds of livelihood matters. Um, so, as a researcher, I hope that we can build data commons where uh, genetic information can be shared freely, uh, so that we can better understand the science and translate the most important aspects of science into clinical care. Uh, but we have to overcome that that fear factor, and, and Gina is one of the one of the first and, and most important steps uh, that really protects participants. So it goes back to educating participants about these kinds of laws that are out there that protects them. Uh, the other aspect is also citizen science, right? So, participants now want their data to be out there and be used by the right researchers uh, to extract information about their type of disease, for example, because they want to really pay it forward, um, so to say. So, um, uh, you know, there are um, technologies like Sync for Science, which allows participants to directly access information from the hospital system and also put information back into the hospital system. These are technologies that are being developed today uh, that allows the the patient to be in control, of their data sets and who they share the data sets with. So I think we're going to see more and more of that in the, in the future that, um, you know, there'll be early adopters of these technologies uh, and others will join as time goes by and they see the benefit of sharing information uh, with the right parties. Just one last question. So uh, in uh, your long
0: experience and the development of precision medicine, what are you most excited about that, you know, just developing at this stage? You know, we're just in the beginning stages of trying to understand how different data sets could be connected, what correlations could be extracted out of it. AI and machine learning are in the early stages But once that develops, I don't know what's your
1: prediction or expectation or hope. Well, I'm most, I'm most excited about, um, really impacting patient outcomes. At the end of the day, um, you know, that's what matters. And maybe we can prevent diseases even before the diseases occur because we have collected data 10 years ahead of time and we have processed that information and we are able to intervene at the right time, um, so that we can influence their lifestyle we can influence other medical processes that can prevent uh, them from actually having the disease. I think that's the most exciting part about precision medicine. As a data scientist, I'm very excited about um, tools and technologies that empower patients, right? So uh, we now have sensors on our phones and watches. Um, uh, You know, there are uh, so many active things that participants and patients can do to participate in their healthcare, to take ownership of their healthcare. They don't have to always wait for the medical system to tell them what to do, right? Um, so I'm really excited about that because it uh, makes information more accessible. It makes them participate in the system more actively, uh, which I think is going to be good in the, in the long run.
0: This was the ninth episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you like the topic, tune in to other episodes as well. Another connected to precision and data gathering is episode six on biosensors and where we will land when ingestible and implantable sensors become a new normal. In episode nine, we focused on genetic testing. Moving from the past to the future, the next episode will concern the use of AI in healthcare. Stay tuned!